Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this episode, Hamid Alizadeh, editor of In Defense of Marxism, talks about the ideas of Hegel and why they are important to Marxist philosophy. So, comrades, um, why do we have to study Hegel? Uh, Why do we have to talk about someone, uh, about the ideas of someone who died more than 200 uh, years ago? Uh, Aren't they old ideas very, very far from our time? And, of course, if you go to the universities today, that's what what people would say. There's no need to to, to study any old ideas. What we need is new ideas, new ideas. That's what, what all the hype is really about. And um, especially the the, the postmodernists today are completely obsessed with this idea of a complete break with the past. That's all the different shades of postmodernism today are basically uh, uh, proponents of this idea. Uh, For them, progress in history uh, and also the history of ideas is just a figment of our imagination, basically. And uh, there's, there's there's no change. Everything is a complete random, basically, process that could or could not have happened. But uh, is it really true if we look at history? Is it really true if you look at literature, for example? Is, uh, the, the, didn't literature change after Homer or after uh, Shakespeare? Or didn't music change after Bach or Beethoven or the Beatles? Is, is it all just the same? Um, and is it, uh, are the cave paintings we saw from early man exactly on the same level as Picasso's uh, Guernica? Uh, obviously, they're not. <laughs> and, but all of this is the closed book to, uh, to, to, to these people. Now, as Marxists, however, we don't see ourselves to be in any way special. We don't think that we somehow magically found this formula that everyone else had, uh, for some weird reason, not discovered in the past couple of thousand years. Uh, we see as Marxism as a condensed knowledge of humanity and all of mankind in the whole period uh, up until uh, ours. And we empathetically put ourselves at the end of a long line of thinkers, uh, from obviously Trotsky, Lenin, Engels, Marx, but also to Hegel, the French materialist, Aristotle, Heraclitus, the, the, the Greek, uh, f- uh, ancient Greek philosophers. All of these people form our uh, heritage, uh, really. And Marx and Engels were very keen students of Hegel. Um, and Hegel actually had a similar view to history and to the history of, of, of philosophy. He didn't see himself as a new philosopher who just cast away everything that came before him, but he saw the history of scientific thought not as a history of, of, of random ideas by random people, but as a reflection of a general process of the development of humanity and of, of, of human culture. And this process, he believed, was governed by specific laws which went from lower uh, to higher forms of thought. And at each stage of development, the new philosophies played an enormous role in developing our understanding of the world and our place uh, in, in this world. But at the same time, each advance carried within it the seeds of its own uh, destruction. Uh, that, uh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, which meant that at some point, this, this school of thought would have to be replaced uh, by a new school of thought. So what was true at one point in history 
was inadequate at, at, a, at a later stage and had to be replaced by something that was more true, uh, basically. Or as Hegel also explained it, that everything which rose uh, it, it was rational at a certain stage, but it was doomed to become, by its own inner contradictions, to become irrational and pass away at a, at a later stage. But that didn't mean that this old philosophy was just lost forever, it was just a random, you know, it just happened and that's it, we just put it to the side and, and just take up new ideas. Its essence was retained in the new schools of thought which appeared in, in its place. Now one a perfect, a very, very good example is the Pythagorean school. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, would know about Pythagoras. Uh, now the Pythagoreans were, uh, well, it's, 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 a, it's a mathematician basically, but they were like a, uh, what is the, the famous uh, formula they had? The Pythagorean theorem. <laughs> no, I mean the, the actual <laughs> equation. Oh, a, a, a squared B plus B squared equals C squared, right? Exactly. So you don't know it, yeah? Uh, yeah. Um, now, the Pythagorean school, what, what most people don't know is that this was a religious sect, an ultra-religious sect, with very, very strict ways of uh, living, like they couldn't eat beans, for example, and they worshipped numbers uh, and saw like magical uh, properties in, in, in numbers. And they had a lot of mystical and obscure ideas. And in fact, the Pythagoreans are the founders of philosophical idealism. That is a philosophical trend which is the base of all religion. I'll get into, into that later. Um, now, of course, in the end, this philosophy was doomed to, to disintegrate. Uh, but at the same time, there's no student who's not taught uh, these uh, brilliant, uh, this, uh, some of the brilliant discoveries that they made in the field of science. In fact, we can say that the Pythagoreans, as the, the founders of idealism, were the first people to uh, uh, systematically investigate quantity on a scientific basis. And uh, that's uh, uh, the, the essential cornerstone of all future uh, uh, science. Except the way that we see, we use the, the, their methods, that the groundwork that they laid, is not in the one-sided religious way. So everything that was inessential and accidental in a way from their thoughts was, was, was put to a side. But the kernel, the essence of their ideas, uh, that what they added to human culture and knowledge, was kept uh, to this day and will be kept until the end of, of, of human history. Uh, now, this, this process takes place throughout, uh, throughout the history of philosophy. You see that the decline of one set of ideas, all of the accidental, non-essential elements uh, are, are discarded and the true kernel is, uh, is retained. At least in general terms, that's the outline of the process that's, that's taking place. Now, Hegel believed that his philosophy in this way was a culmination uh, of all previous philosophy would carry, which carried within it the, the true essence of everything which came before it. And in fact, he derived at his philosophy not by proclaiming something completely new, but by actually criticizing all previous schools of philosophy, one by one, uh, and finding, uh, keeping whatever was uh, valuable within each one of these. Uh, so therefore, in a way, his, his method was a revolutionary break with the past in every way imaginable. But at the same time, it kept all of the advances that past schools of thought uh, uh, had made. And therefore, if we look at the history of philosophy in this way, it's not just a random rise and fall of different people and different ideas, but you have a continuous process 
from going from lower to higher levels, uh, a progressive approximation to the truth, you can say, about the laws that govern this world and our place uh, in this uh, process. So you see, for Hegel, the negative was actually the driving force of, of, uh, of progress and of development. You know, he once said, he said, some people think they're very profound when they say that uh, the good is the driving force of history. But they would be far more profound if they said that evil is the driving for, uh, force of, uh, of history. What does it mean? It means that every prog progress in history was done against what was established and what was maintained, both from a political revolutionary point of view, but also in all of sciences. All new sciences go up against the whole scientific establishment and all of the, uh, the, the, the established um, ways of doing things. Uh, but that is a necessary process of overcoming the obstacles, the, 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 the shortcomings of uh, the, the previous school of thought. Now this process of negation that Hegel explains is the key to understanding his philosophy. Uh, but it's not just something that takes place throughout the history of philosophy, but it's a law that permeates all sciences. Uh, he, he likens this to, you know, he has this great example that also Engels uses, to the seed you know, which he says is, is then negated by the bud, which then disappears when, when the plant blossoms, and then again, which, which disappears when the, the plant becomes the main manifestation, the, sorry, the, the fruit becomes the main manifestation of uh, the plant. So you see, each stage in this process excludes the other one. The, the bud it destroys the, this, uh, the, uh, the, the, the seed. But at the same time, each stage of this process is necessary for the further development. And in all of this, we see the essence of the development uh, of, of, a, of a plant as a whole. Now, Hegel's logic, is, uh, his, his greatest work, start on a very, starts on a very, very simple basis. Uh, and that is that of pure being. Now, what is pure being? We have to try to think about this. It's not easy to think about. It's something that is, but it's pure in the sense that it has no borders, no characteristics. Uh, there's nothing which defines it, and there's nothing which limits it in any way whatsoever. Because if there was a limit, then it wouldn't be pure, obviously. But this pure shape, if we really think about it, has no difference uh, from nothing. So it's, it's basically nothing. You can't really <laughs> define it as anything, so therefore it's in no way different to, to, to nothing. So therefore we have being flowing into nothing. Of course, this is not just nothing, <laughs> because it is actually uh, characterized by one thing, which is that it's not being, right? So it's not being. That's, that's the best way you can, you can, you can describe it. Um, and so here we see that the new element comes into place, which is the, pros, the, 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 new, sorry, yes, the new category of becoming, of change, of development, which within it holds both being and not being. Um, now, this is, a, this is a very abstract, obviously. It's, it's a thought experiment, uh, really, because there's no such thing as pure being, and there's no such thing as nothing. Uh, but, but, but what it really uh, explains, and what Hegel is trying to explain to, to us here, is the fundamentals of dialectics. And that is that the process of change is at the heart of all being and of, of, of all uh, existence. That all logical, all phenomena taken to the logical conclusion turn into their opposite. 
uh, you know, as we know, everything is a state of constant change, of constant coming into being and, and passing away. As soon as you're born, in, in effect, you begin to die. Every cell in our body is created, but eventually it, it will die off. And at a certain stage, there are more, uh, the cells reproduce themselves at a slower rate than, uh, than, than they die. And that's when we begin the, the, the general slow decline of our life, which again reaches a critical stage at one point where we finally are dead. But that doesn't mean that our death is the end of humanity, just like our birth was in the beginning of humanity. We are obviously the descendants of previous generations who came from the ones before them. And you can continue all this all the way back to the birth of humanity, uh, developing from, from primates. And then you can trace it further back all the way down to the, to the uh, early stages of life and the first one-celled organisms uh, that's, that's, uh, that, uh, that were the first stages of life on this planet. At each stage, the new species or the new category of species represent a step forward. Uh, now, the vast majority of species in, in history have gone extinct to this day. But um, instead of them, we can say, you see that new species on higher uh, levels of complexity with higher ability to adapt have, uh, have taken their place. But again, just like in the, in the, in the history of philosophy, this is not just random uh, steps back and forth, you know, the next stage after, let's say, apes can't be a microbe. <laughs> That's not really uh, possible. Uh, but there's, there's, the, each step is a, uh, each level is a step forward. And the new species negates and at the same time preserves what came uh, in the species before them. Of course, this is, this is very general. In general, uh, uh, we're talking. But uh, this can actually be seen in the process of the human fetus, of the development of the human fetus, which actually mimics the development of our species going back to way before we were, <laughs> we, we were humans, uh, and, uh, and which, is, which is quite interesting in itself. So we see that the, there's constant change and the rise or fall of phenomena is a fundamental mode of existence of all uh, matter. Now, this is not a change which is imposed from outside, but is, but, is, but is driven by the internal contradictions of things themselves. Just like pure being, inevitably, by its own internal contradictions, develops into uh, nothing, then death is also uh, inherent in, in, in life. But this is not a change that happens uh, gradually and peacefully, but a change which, hap which takes place where in some periods where there is gradual and, pe uh, and relatively peaceful change, but which then reaches a critical stage with rapid acceleration. You know, once the body reaches a certain stage, terminal decline is, is rapid and you begin to die within weeks or months or, or, or days. Likewise, when a fetus has developed to a certain stage, you have to give birth very fast. You can't really uh, hold it on anymore. It's not like a slow motion, nine-month <laughs> nine birth doesn't really exist. Uh, and the same thing you can say about social revolutions, that once a given soci society has reached a given stage, a certain stage, sorry, the productive forces come into conflict with the existing relations of, of production. And we see here that there's an accumulation of contradiction between the old re existing ruling class and the rising revolutionary class which carries new uh, um, relations of production. Until this reaches a critical stage, and then any accident can set off a social revolution. 
Um, so it's not difficult to see the, the revolutionary implications from, uh, from Hegel's dialectics, but Hegel never reached these conclusions himself explicitly. <clears throat> he was a sympathizer of, of the French Revolution, but he was, um, politically, he was a conservative, uh, in fact. So the question is, how could he reach these revolutionary conclusions? And if he did, why did he remain politically a conservative uh, himself? And for this, we need to look into how um, Hegelianism developed itself. Now, throughout history, as uh, most of you would probably know, philosophy has been divided in two main camps. On the one hand, you have the camp of idealism, which believes that um, the main element in the world is some, some form of idea. And of course, all religions form, uh, fall into idealism, and all idealism is, uh, eventually will fall into some kind of religious uh, uh, idea. On the other hand, we have this school of materialism, which believes that uh, ma the material world is all there is, and it exists independently of our ideas. Human beings are, are a product of the material world, and our ideas are an imperfect approximation, reflection of that material uh, world. And now, Hegel was waging, the, at that time, he was waging a struggle against the weaknesses of both of these uh, camps, these schools of, uh, of thought. On the one hand, he was waging a struggle against the rationalist idealists. You might know Descartes, who said, uh, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and they believed that truth could be achieved only by, uh, by, by a reason, by, by pure thinking, and not by any kind of sensory input, not by any kind of experience, basically. And on the other hand, he was fighting against the empiricists who were kind of materialists, uh, such as David Hume, for example, but who, who, who believed the exact opposite, you can say, of the, of the rationalists, that immediate experience, you know, what we saw immediately in front of us, or what we sensed, that's the only source of knowledge. And for them, knowledge is basically just an accumulation of more and more facts. So the more facts you have, the more you know or you understand. Um, and the, the, the thinker coming immediately before Hegel, his name was Immanuel Kant, made, so he, he, was, he made some brilliant <coughs> discoveries, but his main contribution to philosophy was that he tried to fuse these two camps, basically. And he, he, he was a dualist in, in philosophical terms, which means that he believed that both the world of ideas and the material world existed, but independently of each other. According to Kant, there is a, there is a material world. It exists outside of us. Uh, but we're not able, because our uh, perception is flawed by our internal flaws, we can't really get to the bottom of this material world. We can't know the thing in itself, as, as he called it. We can't understand this world. Um, and our consciousness does not have access to it. And at the same time, our consciousness is, is, uh, uh, kind of carries these a priori ideas which, uh, which allow us to, to acquire knowledge and reach the truth. But he couldn't really explain where these a priori ideas uh, came from. Now, Kantianism, as opposed to Hegelianism, is extremely popular in universities today. I think 99% of uh, political thought, uh, you know, is uh, modern so-called polit thought, political thought, is ba based on Kant. And Hegel is, is not studied by, by, is hard, studied by uh, hardly anyone. But in philosophical terms, Kantianism is extremely poor and it's a dead end in, in, in philosophy. Uh, but nevertheless, it was actually the critique of Kant 
which allowed Hegel to develop his philosophy, really, which allowed Hegel to revolutionize philosophy uh, as it was known. And the main uh, line of attack, his main line of attack, was against Kant's dualism, basically. Firstly, Hegel pointed out that if you are unable to perceive this reality, um, if, uh, and if nothing that we experience can be proved to exist as we experience it, then how can we be sure uh, that anything or anyone else I exists? You fall into this thing called solipsism, that you can't really prove anything besides yourself. Now, Kant wrote about the mind, he wrote about thought, he wrote about logic, but then the question is, if you cannot know the thing in itself, it, that also applies for the mind, that also applies to thoughts, but then how can you develop a philosophy? How can you prove your philosophy if you, you say yourself you can't know your philosophy? It is completely self-contradictory. And uh, if all of this is the case, then why do you even bother writing what you do and, and discussing philosophy and, and politics and so on if you can't even prove that there's anyone on the receiving end, uh, so to say? Um, and, yeah. So, <clears throat> that's the fundamental problem of all idealism, es essentially, is that, that they cannot explain how this world of ideals connects to the material. Where is the... Uh, the, the, the connecting link. And that's where always some form of religious thing com comes into place. Um, now, what Kant really did was to take this idea to his limit and to show its absurdity, really. And in this way, in a negative way, he helped propel philosophy forward because everyone could see that this form of, form of, uh, uh, of, of thinking wasn't really um, working anymore. Um, now, Hegel went further in his criticism um, you know, philosophy is a very is a is a very strange science. It's, it's a very it's a different science than other sciences, <coughs> and in particular logic, because here you're talking about thinking about thinking. You're thinking about thoughts, uh, and in this field, how can you prove anything? You know, this is the main. How do how do you prove that your thoughts are right or wrong? Because um, every person can just come out and say, well. Uh, my thoughts are right because I prove them inside my own <laughs> thinking and that's just the way it is. <laughs> you know? um, and as long as you keep philosophy within the, the sphere of pure thought, which was what the rationalists did, pure thinking, then there's very strict limits to how much we can develop logic as it is. In fact, Kant uh, admitted that logic hadn't been developed since Aristotle which is, came a couple of thousand years uh, uh, before him. Uh, and, and especially Aristotle's former logic, which is based on the idea, the, what's called the law of identity, essentially that A equals A. Uh, it's on that basis that we can make any statement, he said. And that kind of becomes the way of proving whether our statements are, are, are correct or not. But what, is, what does this, this really mean? Put very simply, it means that everything is equal to itself. But as Hegel also pointed out, there's no two A's which are similar to each other. Uh, you know, you can put them on a under a magnifying glass and, and you won't find two uh, similar A's. Well then, you can say they represent something, such as a banana, but that doesn't really hold either because there are no two similar, <laughs> similar, similar bananas. Um, at each time, every single banana in the world is in a state of constant change and is different sizes, different shapes, and so on. So we can say that a banana is equal to itself outside of time and space, but that's a completely empty statement which doesn't explain anything to us. 
and of course, in daily day life, we can use this as, as a general rule of thumb. Uh, that, yeah, a banana is a banana. Um, but for scientific inquiry of any kind, of any more serious kind of thinking, this logic is completely hopeless. Uh, but as long as the rationalist and Kant didn't want to move beyond this world of pure reason, of pure just thinking, only proving everything via uh, just pure thinking, um, they couldn't be, go beyond this. And here you have, this is the, with the rise of the bourgeoisie, all of Europe in a state of uh, a, a full flux. You have the rising bourgeois, rapid developments in science and technology and industry. And then you have philosophy just, uh, uh, you know, building a massive wall around itself and all of this new world that, that was being uh, discovered. Um, because, and, and just hiding under, under the guise of abstract eternal truths, which couldn't, which couldn't change any of the flux and change that, that the, sorry, which couldn't explain any of the uh, flux and change of that real world. Um, now, general abstract ideas are completely useless uh, and superficial in trying to achieve uh, anything uh, deeper than, than immediate everyday uh, tasks. They can, they, they can basically mean whatever you want them to. Now, Hegel overcame this by attacking dualism in all of his guises. And by dualism, I say again, this, this idea that there is a material world and there's an ideal world, and they exist independently, basically, of each other. And he replaced this idea with what he called absolute idealism, or what we call objective idealism. And that's the idea that there is no distinction between the material world and the world of ideas, but all of it is the world of ideas. Uh, according to Hegel, Everything we can see, sense, and experience is essentially what he called the absolute spirit or the absolute idea, which Engels said he said absolutely nothing about. <laughs> but, but that was his basic uh, philosophy. And on the one hand, this is an extremely reactionary conservative. Uh, this has an ex extremely reactionary conservative side, uh, which goes towards religion and so on. But at the same time, it, has, it had a very, very revolutionary repercussion because it allowed Hegel to develop his, his dialectics. Because suddenly, for the first time, you had philosophy and logic being able to uh, use this infinite world of empirical sciences which was uh, developing and use it to develop and study uh, philosophy and to, to prove their, their logic, basically. Um, and, uh, the, and logic and scientific thought suddenly had a field that it could operate in, find proofs, and, and, and get connected to the real world, uh, so to say. And by studying these sciences, Hegel uh, developed uh, you know, a, a scientific uh, logic. Um, and for him, basically, logic was, and this is what set him apart from all of the previous uh, philosophers, logic was the highest form of all of the positive sciences. It was kind of the bones that the sciences put flesh to the bones of, of, of logic. But in the field of material sciences, uh, Hegel was confronted by the other school that I talked about, the empiricist school, who were materialists, who have, but who were very, very crude materialists. They argued that the immediate experience is all uh, that we needed to, in order to understand the world. That there's no such thing as abstract thinking. Uh, and uh, and, and you, everything you saw, that was the proof for whatever existed, and you didn't need to, to, to develop anything. And Hegel agreed that, yes, the truth is concrete, that the truth is, has to be tested out in reality one way or another. 
But uh, according to him, a heap of facts didn't necessarily mean uh, knowledge. It didn't mean that you understood the world if you don't understand how to sort out in this heap of facts. Uh, yeah, or as another philosopher put it, Heraclitus, you might have heard of him, he said, uh, eyes and ears are bad witnesses for people with barbarian souls. Uh, Hegel put it in a different way. He said, just as there, there is an empty uh, depth there's an empty width. There is, if you just focus on general abstract formulas, it's completely empty. But also, if you just, you just, you know, as I said, use this idea of a heap of facts that's also completely empty and useless uh, for for any real endeavor. The f the point of philosophy is to sort out in this infinite number of of, of phenomena and see their interconnections, their relations. And the, their inner contradictions and, and the, the, their logic, so to say, their, 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 their direction of development, which is not necessarily always immediately visible to the naked eye. Um, and as he explained, the generalization is an essential part of human existence and of human, uh, human being. In fact, he, he said something which is very interesting when you think about it. He said, you can't describe what you mean. And you think about it, what does it actually mean? He says, well... Again, let's, let's talk about the banana. I, I'm looking at a banana, and I'm trying to describe it to you. What would I say? This is a banana. But that's a very general idea. And then I would say, well, it's yellow, it's big or small, and it's curved in this and that way. But these are all general words. These are all things that explain general things. They would never in any way give you an idea of that particular banana that I'm, <laughs> that, that I'm seeing. All of my words, all human words, in fact, are generalities. Um, and so... The, the empiricists were hypocrites themselves because every single word that he wrote in, in their books and in the theories were a generality. Even their theory was a generality itself. So there's lots of contradictions uh, there. Um, uh, da -da -da -da. Yeah. But, but the point is that the reason why we know this banana is because we've seen countless of bananas both individually and also passed on from our far forefathers the way that bananas have been seen and uh, experienced in society as a whole that we live in. And through this process, we've developed a, a, an abstract image of what a banana is, or uh, that's maybe funny, but, or a human being, or a table, anything like uh, anything else. Um, so that in, in, in some ways, this abstract universal banana is in fact more true uh, than, than any given banana I would see because it's been stripped off of all of the accidental features that it has and boiled down to the essence of what, what signifies that particular uh, fruit. So we can say that Hegel's logic is not the law of identity like Aristotle said A is equal A but more something like A equals the essence of the, li of the living and changing uh, A's uh, as they have developed in, co in connection with everything else in the world up until now. That's a very different uh, uh, statement. So having broken down this barrier between the, the, the consciousness and the material world, he could develop a very, very revolutionary philosophy. Um, and, and, and also, well, flowing from this, he said that philosophical principles is not something that can be decided by some kind of predetermined schema. You know, we see this very often, that people go up and make a general statement, and sometimes I'm thinking, even, even some Marxists, you know, sometimes I'm thinking, 
that could apply to anything <laughs> or any country you're talking about. <laughs> you know? um, but of course, sometimes you do have to do that because we want to point out <laughs> the, the, the general process, which is similar uh, throughout the world. But, but what he said is that in order to understand the inner laws and the logic of, of things, we need to, to, to kind of drown ourselves in it, he said. He said we have to surrender ourselves to the material that we're trying to study. And from that, deduce the, 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 the general processes which are, which are taking place. Uh, and in doing so, we can discover patterns and laws which replicate themselves, not just in that particular field that we're studying, but throughout nature and throughout human history. That's essentially what dialectics uh, boils down to. And once we've achieved this, all talk of abstract freedom is basically uh, useless. Real freedom, from, from Hegel's point of view, is the understanding of the laws which determine our development. Um, the, the problem is that these laws, in Hegel's view, was the laws that developed the absolute spirit. Something which is completely non-Hegelian, in fact, it doesn't re because it doesn't flow from his philosophy. He always said, every system must justify itself. But you see, if you pull out the absolute spirit out of Hegel's philosophy, the philosophy stands. It's almost like you build a house and then you forget to take down the scaffold, <laughs> scaffolding. Um, and also, he couldn't explain how did this absolute idea coincide with the material world? How did it? How was it linked? How was it that it permeated the, 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 the world that we that we live in? So, therefore, through the back door, in fact, in a way, unintentionally, he slipped back towards uh, a kind of dualism that he was he was fighting. That was uh, the, the the main way, in fact, that he could overcome the limitations of previous uh, philosophies. Uh, for Hegel, the history of nature and human society is the history of the absolute spirit. Um, and it's an absolute spirit which has kind of alienated itself from itself, and then it's returning to itself through the development of philosophy. So this spirit throughout the history of humanity has been kind of transcending the minds of philosophers and getting to grips with itself. And finally, all of this process is coming to end in Hegel where the spirit gets full cognition, full recognition of itself. Um, so you see that the, the person, Hegel, who actually struck a death blow to all formalism and schematicism, builds the biggest formula and schema that, that, that any philosopher has, uh, has ever built. And how can we explain, uh, how can we explain this, uh, how this happened? First of all, Hegel was a Christian. And he came up in the school of, of, of German uh, idealism, uh, a school which was at the time far richer, in fact, than uh, other schools such as uh, British uh, empirical philosophy. And he was looking at history and he was looking at development from the point of view of a philosopher, seeing philosophy as the main driving force, in fact, of, of history. Uh, and perhaps this is also related to the development of German capitalism because German capitalism had just been in the Thirty Years' War. It was completely destroyed and debilitated. It was, in fact, the most backward and primitive, uh, weakest of all the capitalist nations in, in, in Europe. It was a semi-capitalist, actually. Uh, it was a backward country which had actually literature as its highest form of development. And literature was taking up disproportionate space in relation to the rest of society because, because society was, was so uh, uh, backward.
But whereas literature maybe reflected more the sweeping developments in France and other other European countries where capitalism was was moving forward. And uh, this this kind of uh, inverse uh, social uh, uh, construction was what Hegel was trying to paste over history as a whole. You know, the philosophers, the philosophy was the main leaders of world history and the driving forces of this history. He's, he saw basically the whole history of humanity uh, from his own individual uh, position. And at the same time, Hegel anticipated many of the big developments that capitalism led to, chemistry and biology and other sciences. Um, and he, he proved dialectics, or he developed the dialectical method not uh, as, a, as the inherent laws of uh, uh, nature, but as properties of the mind. And you can say that is a very ingenious achievement to do with very, very few tools. But nevertheless, that was the, 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 the great shortcoming of his philosophy. That he, he anticipated the great developments of capitalism in the 1800s. And because of this, his system was, uh, was flawed, and it fell apart immediately after his death. And it was um, Marx and Engels who, in a very true Hegelian style, who had, who had to salvage the revolutionary kernel of Hegel's philosophy and turn it upside down, or right side up, as, 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 uh, as they said. Now, from a Marxist perspective, there is nothing but the material world. Uh, human beings and the human mind are products of, the mat of matter organized in a particular way. And our thoughts and ideas are imperfect reflection of, 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 of this material world, approximations to understanding the truth about this, uh, this material world. Uh, and dialectics is not the laws of the mind, but the laws inherent in, 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 in nature itself. And by our interaction, by our activity in this world, we are able to discover these laws. Now, Lenin said that Marxism is almighty because it's true. And what does that really, it's not a religious statement, but it means that Marxism derives its ideas uh, from material reality and not the other way around. And in that sense, we can say that Marxism is not uh, really a philosophy like other philosophies. With, with, with Hegel, we can say philosophy really ended in that sense, that it wasn't, uh, it, it, Marxism is not a fixed schema, but a method of viewing the world, a method which is in constant development itself of viewing the world and, of, and, and human society. For us, mankind is nothing but matter which is conscious of itself. Uh, and it's also object to, object to its own laws, in fact. Individuals, yes, we're free to make our own choices and decisions, but if you look at it from a bird's eye view, a bit further away, we immediately see that there are iron laws independently and often opposed to the wills of the millions of, of, of human beings which, which rule our society and our history. A majority of human beings, for instance, uh, want nothing in their lives but a peaceful life. This is what the majority of human beings want. And yet, trying to pursue this in capitalist society, you, you constantly run into these insurmountable obstacles that society puts in front of them. And therefore, you see precisely the people who are mostly uh, determined to achieve peaceful, uh, harmonious existence, become the most radical revolutionaries uh, uh, that you can uh, that you can imagine. Uh, 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 reflected in the massive radicalizations that we see uh, everywhere, and looking at human history from a bit further away, these these type of laws which govern human society and the human mind are even more striking. Now, before anything else, humans. 
uh, have to eat, they have to sleep, and they have to subsist themselves uh, somehow. And in, in trying to do this, we develop tools uh, and means of production um, sorry, it, which, which raises our pr productivity. At a certain stage, this meant that a part of humanity didn't have to work uh, to sustain itself, and, th and they could basically live off the surplus value created by the rest of uh, by, by, by the others. And here we see the rise of class society, which is driven by the struggle for this exact surplus pro uh, value itself. Now, at each stage, this uh, this class society, um, sorry, at each stage. Uh, of class society, the developments of the productive forces lead to enormous uh, steps forward. Like we see in the for early stages of slavery, we saw the blossoming of, of culture, of philosophy, of science at an unprecedented scale, in particular in ancient Greece. Uh, but at the same time, this mode of production, slavery, reached its apex uh, in, the, in ancient Rome and then buckled under its own weight, uh, under the weight of its own uh, contradictions. And from the ruins of that, you see the rise of, uh, of feudalism, which also outplayed this role, and which was overthrown by capitalism. Now, at each stage, the full development of a given class society leads to the downfall and this a super, uh, a supersession by another. Uh, now, Hegel was looking for the laws of development of, of philosophy in, within philosophy itself, and it's true that there are laws governing philosophy itself as a field. It, philosophy has its own inner laws, by other, by other, by, by other words. But nevertheless, it, these are completely tied to the development of society and the development of the, of the productive forces themselves. The rise of and fall of different schools of thought correspond to the rise and fall of different classes and of different class societies. And every revolutionary class must have a revolutionary uh, philosophy, necessarily. Uh, capitalism itself came to power on the basis of a fight against feudalism, against religious obscurantism. It came to the world by stating the truth, you know, illuminating uh, the, the dark Middle Ages, and laying bare the hypocrisy and the irrationality of feudal society. Now, this was a huge step forward for, for, for humanity at that point, and we saw an unprecedented development of the productive forces uh, which for the first time actually gives us the ability to lift humanity out of barbarism uh, uh, that, that, that we have essentially been, uh, been uh, suffering under uh, in our history until now. But capitalism has also now reached an apex and it's become an obstacle for human progress. Now, to, uh, and today it's, it's gone into its opposite, so stating the, stating the truth has become a, a threat to capitalism itself. That's, this is partially why we have all this fake news, which is the thing, not from a right-wing point of view, but from, for, for, from a true point of view. It's almost all news, basically. Um, and and stating, stating the truth has become a threat to the system itself. It's, it's become a revolutionary deed. Not just, as, you know, not just exposing whatever you know, uh, hypocrisy and lies of, of, the, of the bourgeois. Um, sorry. Uh, but exposing the inner contradictions of society itself, a deeper truth, uh, going back uh, uh, to, to explain how class society developed reaching this stage and why it must necessarily be overthrown now. And in the womb of capitalist society, the working class is being prepared, as is grave diggers. Um, the only class that can lead uh, humanity out of the barbarism of, uh, of, of class society uh, and make it the masters of its own uh, destiny.
So freedom for us, for Marxists today, what does it consist of? Is, is a recognition of this process, is the understanding of this process of, of history, of this process in, in, in human society, and to participate in it as conscious elements uh, rather than unconscious ones, and to push humanity forward out of the, this dead end of, of, of barbarism and pave the way for the true uh, free development of human society. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.